This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. And welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan, and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. This month, we're focusing on sculpture. DPAG Society President Ross Curry will be talking to Vanessa Cook about the stunning Tuhura Sculpture Invitational, currently showing at Milford Gallery. But first, here's Ross with the latest on the Dunedin art scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, what's happening at the Dunedin School of Art in March? Well, Clive Humphreys, former Dunedin resident now living on Waiheke Island, is giving a public seminar at the School of Art on Thursday, March the 9th, in the main lecture theatre at 12 o'clock. His seminar is entitled Between Showers, Paintings from the Last Three Years. Clive is a printmaker and painter, and some of you may remember his show Open Air at the RDS Gallery 2021-2022 with his lush primeval forest scapes. This was fabulous. What about the Hogan Library? Sorowit Songsataya, the current Francis Hodgkins Fellow, will have an exhibition of their new work opening at the Hocken on Saturday, March the 18th through until June the 17th. The show is called Nirin, which means eternal. This would have a mixed media, including sculpture, moving and still image. And of course we interviewed Sorowit on Sightlines last year, so if you plan to attend this highly anticipated exhibition, you can listen to the interview on our website at dpags.org.nz. What's coming up at DPAG, Ross, speaking of DPAG? At the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, Emily Floyd's show, Keeping It Complex, Keeping It Connected, continues until March the 26th. Emily works across sculpture and public installation to explore histories of play. Education, care and childhood are ongoing concerns in her work. Memories of a Naturalist on the ground floor has a range of artworks and archival documents that explore the tracks and traces of plants and animals in common landscapes. This exhibition covers a longer period of time, depicting how worlds we inhabit have been shaped, remade and interpreted. It includes work by Aisha Green, Lucy Mayle, Kate Mary Ogston, Nova Paul, George Malcolm Thompson and Kerry Whiteri. A fantastic selection um, of variable work uh, in that offering. And my own personal great excitement, we have a major Robin White exhibition coming to town. Tell us about that. Well, I share your excitement here, Sally. And the recent Dame Robin White retrospective from Te Papa Tongarewa will be opening on March the 11th in Dunedin. So put that in your calendar. Fanakatenga, Something is Happening Here, spans White's 50-year career and it includes works made when White lived in Dunedin during the 1970s. Two paintings the Society helped to fund are in this retrospective, Harbour Cone and Sam Hunt at the Portobello Pub. This is a major event in Dunedin's art world. Don't miss it. Yes, I think people need to be reminded that Robin White uh, has a huge connection to Dunedin. That's right. And a lot of her very, very best and most famous work is Dunedin-orientated, so that's going to be an absolute treat. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for our feature item. 
Today my guest is Vanessa Cook, art consultant and curator at Milford Gallery in Dunedin. Milford Gallery is showing a selection of sculptures that for Dunedin is unprecedented in terms of scope and variety. It includes New Zealand's top sculptors with national and international profiles. This is a spectacular, outstanding exhibition and a memorable experience for visitors to this show. Vanessa, welcome to Sightlines. Thank you so much for having me. This is billed as an invitational, this show. Can you tell us what were your criteria in inviting the particular sculptors in this show? Well, an invitational is a really interesting way to do a show, especially in a gallery like ours, where often our exhibitions are... Uh, focus on the artists that we represent but with an invitational it has more of a theory of what we want to achieve and then we can invite specific artists so in this particular show to Huda we've invited our significant artists but then other artists that add to the um, whole concept which is showcasing really important New Zealand sculpture works and a range of media by by New Zealand sculptors. You've certainly achieved that because <laughs> there's a really great range of sculptures in the show. There's 15 sculptors in the show with major works each showing very significant pieces. What do you think attracts people to sculpture? Well, I think with sculpture it's a it's a bodily experience and you you're really when you walk into this to a space and you see a sculpture, you're asked to interact with it with your body. So it's not just looking at a representation, but it's a very physical experience. With I wanted sculpture. to touch a lot of the sculptures I saw, but you were looking, so I thought I'd better not. <laughs> it's interesting with this show because I think that some of the more the the harder and the stronger sculptures are the ones that feel more intimate that you actually want to touch them like mm, um, Ben right. Pierce's work mm. it's very rusty and you kind of think oh well how, do, how does that texture feel mm, or, mm. or Paul Dibble's bronze sculptures that are really smooth and you just want to touch them and I think a lot of the time with sculpture you can you actually can go up a bronze work it's it's you can't really do anything to it so touching it is part of that experience too but they especially call for being moved around because every aspect it's not just the representation on a flat surface that you're looking at they're asking you to walk and have a look at all different angles and every angle is a surprise so Mm. they're asking you to walk around and, and to look at everything from below from above from close from far away that's right. Uh, although when you mentioned Paul Dibble, I thought reaching up to, to, to touch his hui is a bit problematic. <laughs> yep. It's just about on the roof. Yes, definitely. That one, you, you almost need a little bit of distance to take it in because it's That's a work right. that you'd probably have outside. And we've had so many people walk past the window and it's perfectly framed in the window mm-hmm. and they'll see it and, and come in and just whoa it's almost yeah, touching it's the, the roof of the factor. gallery That's it certainly sure. does yeah so how do you think people's reactions to sculpture differ in terms of their reactions to other art forms well i think pe- some people don't know how to interact with the sculpture and they're trying to read they're trying to read it like they would a painting but i think that with sculpture there's, you don't have to understand a narrative. You don't have to understand what it's trying to say to experience it well. Some of our sculptures have a strong narrative where, where you can look at it and you can tell that there's a story in it, <coughs> where other sculptures are simply looking at what I'd call sculptural conventions, like 
they are looking at balance and space and form and mass tension and you can, you can look at it and you don't have to understand it you can look at it and just experience it do sculptures need a story or narrative element I don't think that they do at all. I think the sculpture in themselves is a story, but I think that a lot of our sculptures, uh, some of well, some of our sculptures do, and I, I think that you can create a narrative around a lot of them. I mean, I, I can I love creating narratives around works. Um, mm, me too. Yeah, Paul Dibble's Parallel Worlds. I had someone come in, and they were not from New Zealand, and they asked me if the work was created by a Maori artist. And I said, no, not created by a Māori artist. But the, the amazing thing about this work and a lot of the works that are coming out of New Zealand is that there is this cross-cultural language and we see it in parallel worlds and we see in Robert Yonker's work. You don't have to be a New Zealander or Māori or Pākehā to understand the stories that are going on. In and them. in parallel worlds has got an environmental theme, hasn't it? Because, of course, Absolutely. the huia is extinct yep. and they've got a guy or a person, a figure at the bottom, strident, strong, dominating, yep. and the poor old huia is in heaven at the top. Yeah, yeah. And the huia is like a crown, isn't it? It's um, a, a truly amazing piece that one and it's larger than life it's larger than us you know it's almost like uh, it's got a globe within it with the steel that's been severed by this this tree it's a very powerful piece it's a very powerful piece yes I saw a good quote from Henry Moore who said quote abstraction means getting away from a visual interpretation but nearer an emotional one yeah I think that's a I think that's great and there's certainly works in this exhibition that you can make up a story, but you look at the Ben Pierce and you can say, oh, that's rocks stacked on each other. But then when you look at it in another way, you realise that it's not rocks stacked on each other. So what is it trying to tell you? And there's other things that come to mind. It's trying to tell you about balance. It's trying to tell you about tension. Connectivity. Um, connectivity, mm. yes. And then it leads you to different ways. How is this made? How did the sculpture put, sculptor put this together? Um, how does it work in different spaces? Would it work outside the same way that it works inside? What is that sculpture, what is Ben Pierce's pseudo-rock saying to Chris Booth's actual rocks or Chris Charteris's rocks that mm. he's taken and transformed from the space that they were originally in? So already you're alluding to the fact that there's a really wide range of sculptures in this show. Um, can you talk us through the different types of sculptures and materials on the show? Because there, there are different methods, different materials. There are a wide range of sculptural materials. And I think in a way some of the show pushes the boundaries of what we understand sculpture is. So there's your classic rock, bronze metal, things that often are used in, in modern sculpture and a lot of people say oh a sculpture, we know we know those materials but in this show we've got neon lights we've got harakiki flax we've got uh, we've got different forms of plastic that, and each of those materials have been taken to a completely different way of understanding so if we have we look at, for example, Neil Dawson's feathers, he's taking 
polycarbonate, which is a type of plastic that's often used in building, and he's making these amazing feathers that suspend above you, and as the wind hits them, they wave, and you would never mm, think, oh, well, they that's... look so fine, they could float. Yeah, they almost look like they are a, a feather. You can absolutely see feather, that. A yeah. giant feather. Mm, that's right. And then he's taking things like automotive paint that you that is so everyday to us and to, and making it absolutely beautiful so in different angles the paint will reflect onto the wall and and transfer a color or you just the materials they're taking them and just giving you a whole new experience or Chris Booth for example he's taken these hard river stone or granite rocks stacked them up and when you see them in that environment, they look like they're almost soft and flopped onto each mm. other. So They look like they're made to measure, don't they? They do. It's, they fit so perfectly together. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Or Chris Charteris, who takes a very everyday uh, riv- river stone that when you're at the river and you look, you, they're instantly recognisable. But then he puts them on the wall like jewellery and, and you can see that each rock or each stone has an individual colour and a slightly different shape and they are like pearls or they are like parts of a, a necklace. You mentioned earlier the Harakiki sculpture and that was one of the really interesting pieces in this show I thought by Ngahina Hohaya. Yes. <laughs> and she's got a background in traditional weaving and fibre work yes. and she's produced this piece of sculpture that looks like a waterfall actually. It does, it's an outstanding work and she's taken traditional methods of weaving and made this installation that is very moving and in a way it's got a very strong narrative to it but even looking at it you can see the. It, what she's done is she's created a waterfall out of those flax fibres and it almost looks like veins of blood it's going re- down the reddish colour. It's a isn't reddish it? colour, mm. and the, and the top of the of the uh, work is almost like a cloak or a veil. So it's like this cloak that extends down to the ground. It is like a waterfall of blood, and she talks about all this the strands of her whakapapa. So it's talking to the past and to the future, and it is like these bloodlines going down the wall. But then she's used her traditional methods to make it and it was amazing because she came down and she installed this work and it had been transported and the flax she had a little spray bottle and the because the flax has been stripped and then boiled and then dyed it will keep its shape with a little bit of water and she can spray it and then she can mold it it's it's a very organic amazing and she really material. knows how her material works. She knows behaves, so well. Yeah. She knows exactly how much water, exactly how damp it should be, mm. how much she can touch it, how much she can move it. The other thing that struck me with that piece is the horizontal battens. Yes. It could be metaphors for things that impede progress. Yes, yes, or a, a ladder. It almost looks like a ladder. Mm, that's or that right. combination between the flax and the wood. Mm. And, there's, and there's stone in there as well on the foundation. And albatross feathers which, uh, I mean, for us here in Otago, that's a really awesome work because it wasn't intended to be about Otago as such, but there's a a real connection to those albatross feathers and her iwi and and parihaka and also um, a number of people that came down here and were building stone walls. And so you've got this basalt and the albatross. Mm. I um, hope the albatross flew away after the (laughs) donation. (laughs) Well, so do I. (laughs) 
let's move on to the other aspects of the show that really, and some of these pieces are like industrially produced. They're, mm. they're large-scale works that have required a lot of technology, machinery, and whatever. How does the actual production of these vary between them? You've mentioned about the haraheke, the flax. What about some of the pieces that are carved, moulded? They're all quite individual in the way that they're, they're made. Um, and like you said, they are large-scale works. So in a case of Paul Dibble, we're looking at a casting in bronze and we've got and he's got a, a lot of quartz and steel in his work. And this is a, a massive piece. And he actually has a huge foundry in Palmerston North and makes these works from start to finish. So he doesn't outsource? He, he, his... Well, he has a huge studio. He has a team working with him. But mm-hmm. no, he doesn't outsource parts of the work. Yet some people, um, for example, Ben Pierce, his work is very, very hands-on, um, but it may get, start, it get started on a computer and then he will get all of the pieces, each individual piece, it's it's as a flat it's created as a flat work. He gets it sent away and the pieces get cut laser cut and then he gets them back into the studio and like a jigsaw puzzle, he's taking flat pieces and turning them into three dimensional forms. So he uses uh, technology, but also a very practical way of putting these works together. I I honestly don't know how he does it. Some of these sculptures, you can see that there's over three or four hundred pieces that he memorises where they go and just (laughs) welds them together. Mm. It's it's quite amazing. It is, but the the end product is pretty stunning in this case. It is indeed, yes. One of my favourites. Are computers used widely in a lot of these pieces in the planning process? I think in some of them... There's quite a traditional uh, way of making bronze sculptures and Terry Stringer and Paul Dibble both look at making small marquettes with smaller works and then building up. Ben will make a marquette, a digital marquette on the computer. Then someone like uh, Chris Charteris or Chris Booth, they'll go on site and they'll collect They'll collect their materials, and that may that may um, talk about the process more. I mean, with Chris Charteris, we've got a work there we, called Trinity, where he's got three rocks, and they were obviously all from the same rock. And he talks about driving down the road, seeing them on the side of the road, and putting them in the back, you know, back of the truck once he'd, um, you know, got permission and everything. And with those works, there's just a small. He's just carefully read the rock and had some time with it and there's the smallest the carving that's just transcended it from something that you'd find on the side of the road so for him it's a very emotional and physical experience Mm. whereas you know like Robert Yunker for example he's got a huge neon work there in a box and that hot, the the it's it's an amazing piece because you, it is, you isn't it's it? incredible. Yeah. So he's designed that neon piece, and he understands what those materials are going to do. He understands that if he puts a mirror in a certain place, or if he puts a neon in a certain place, he will get a certain reflection, and that's very well planned. So they've all worked in really really different ways to create their works. Do you think in the future artificial intelligence is going to have any role? in the sculpturing processes? That's a very good question. Perhaps some artificial intelligence will be their own artist, but I think in a way the hand of the maker is within all artworks as I see it. 
if something else is taking over the design process, then it's design for me. Um, the, the artwork is something that's made by an artist. They may use technology, but in the cases here, and from what I've found in, in all um, technology used with art, is it's more of a tool. It's just another tool. It's like a tool that a clay you would make with clay or a tool that you it's a paintbrush it's but at just at the end of the day form. the artist is in control the artist is in and control. the creativity yep. is coming from the artist not the tool that's truly what i believe yep. yeah good <laughs> just briefly well i mean remember you were telling me that with the graham bennett sculpture which is a pretty stunning piece in the show one of the um, younger visitors described it as a rocket garden, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was great. So how have visitors responded to the sculptures in the show generally? Well, they often open the door and their mouth just drops and they go, wow. But it's been generally... No, I understand it's that. Quite, it's quite... It, as soon as you open the door, it's, it's a very... Uh, not an overwhelming experience, but it's a real bodily experience. Mm. These works are from the roof to the ground and everywhere you look. So... I've had some people already coming back two or three times and saying, well, this is so, so cool. I'm going to bring people back. I'm coming back. It's it's quite an awe-inspiring experience because often sculptures of this scale are outdoors and you'll go to a sculpture park or you might see them in a public place. But to have them pulled indoors and talking to each other in conversation with each other is a very rare thing to do. In fact, we've been trying to look at, to see if a gallery... Adela Gallery has ever done a sculpture a show of this scale and I can't actually find one. Mm. So it's, Certainly not in Dunedin. No, no. Well, nationally, a lot of galleries don't have the space for this. We're just very lucky that in Dunedin we have such a large space um, that we can even show these works. I mean, they're, some of them are almost four metres high. And uh, yeah, it's just getting, a, getting them in there and oh, yep. unpacking them must have been a chore in itself. Yeah, we all um, had hands in that one. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> you did. All hands on. One of the little games that my partner and I play when we go to shows is to say to each other, okay, we're allowed one piece from this show. Which one are we going to take? Um, usually it's with shows we can't afford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you were going to play this game, what piece in the show would you like to take home? Oh, do you want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> yeah, that you give you time to think. Uh, I'll go for the Ben Pierce one of the Corton Steel, which has got stacked rock-like chunks to, attached that go soaring, and, the, and you've talked about the angles on those, and it's it's um, forever interesting. This piece. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I got a place in my garden. Yeah, I was just going right to say, where, where are you going to put it? Yeah, it's got. We got space for it. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Okay, your turn. Well, m- the work that I would choose would absolutely not fit on the wall, but it's Lonnie Hutchinson's Hibiscus Cave, which is mm. a massive wall installation. It's beautiful. Yeah, mm. and it's been <clears throat> shown around New Zealand, and we're very lucky to have the piece. And it took two full days to install so I, I would be it. asking my technicians to come and install it in my house and I'd probably have to build a wall for it but the thing is it's beside my desk and every day I see something different in that work whether it be the pieces that I'm looking at or the negative spaces in between it's very beautiful and it, it surprises me every day so I would like that in my home because it would it would just give me something fresh to look at that would the be time. a really enduring piece to have in your home wouldn't it 
wouldn't it? And change with the light of the day and the way the sun oh, hits yes, it, the yes. shadows. Um, but so many pieces piece. to it. Yes, um, it's Can't 118. Can't afford to lose one. <laughs> no, there's 118 pieces. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Vanessa, many thanks for joining us today. And if listeners haven't seen this show already, it's on at the Milford until April the 15th. Don't miss it. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again in April when we talk to Clive Humphreys, acclaimed landscape painter and former head of the Dunedin Art School, about his upcoming exhibition. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer Jonathan Quayoff. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.